Hello and welcome, my micro friends, to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm Tess. And I'm John. And this is part two of our Black Lives Matter microbiology series. That's right. In part one, we discussed five truly amazing microbiologists. And today we are continuing with five more black microbiologists. We hope to share with you some of their extraordinary achievements and the changes they've made to our history. But first, just in case anyone forgot from part one, we are still drinking our winter mint and julep. So if you'd like to drink along, again, it is one shot or two of Dr. McKillicuddy's or a mint liqueur with some hot cocoa. One last thing before we start the show, we would really, really love if you could fill out the listener survey. John thinks we are talking into the void of nothing, and I would really like to show him that there are people that are actually listening. So people, are you there? Do you want to help a girl out? Please let me know what you think of our podcast by clicking the link on the show notes or heading over to microbigales.com slash survey. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S dot com slash S-U-R-V-E-Y. It will honestly take you less than 10 minutes and it would help me to prove John wrong. And we all love that. Prove me wrong, everyone. All right. So are you ready to get started? Oh, I'm ready, John. So who is number six on our list? Number six is O'Neill Ray Collins. What a name. It is. I really like that name. O'Neill was born to a cotton farmer in the state of Louisiana in 1931. He went on and completed his PhD at the University of Iowa in 1961, focusing on mycology or the study of fungus. He started his academic career in New York, but ended up at University of California, Berkeley in 1969. Damn, that guy went around, huh? He did. And he eventually became the chairman in the Department of Botany, ending his career in 1981. So in UC Berkeley, he ended his career? Yes. Cool. While at Berkeley... He was also the associate dean of the graduate division of the committee that evaluated new ethnic studies, as well as overseeing the development of the graduate minority program. Wow. During his academic career, he conducted research and was known for the discovery of slime molds mating types, having a total of 75 publications. 75? Yeah. Holy moly, on all on slime molds? Yeah. Wow, he had a lot to say about them, huh? Now, slime molds are a group of organisms that used to be classified as fungi, but now are protozoa and are found in dark, cool, and moist conditions. There's three basic types. Ooh, tell me about them. The first one is plasmodial. This is an enormous single cell with thousands of nuclei. Like how big are we talking? I think you can see it with your naked eye. Wow, that's super enormous. I believe it starts off as multiple cells, but the cells fuse together and they just join into one enormous cell. Have you ever seen a slime mold? No, I haven't. Me neither. I really want to, though. I know. And poke it <laughs> like jello. Anyways, the second group is cellular. It starts off as a single cell, but it releases a chemical that causes them to congregate together. And last but not least is the labyrinth eulomycota. Labyrinth eulomycota. Thank you. <laughs> Some species are even known for solving mazes 
or finding the most efficient routes in city or subway diagrams. They can use the subway systems? Well, they're kind of diagrams. They build this little maze and it can find the most efficient way to transverse it. You should, I suggest everyone to look it up on YouTube. Ooh, we should totally put some YouTube vids up there. I got to see this. And so this is due to its ability to spread out and connect between food sources. It even like cuts or inactivates connections from areas that no longer supply food to expend the least amount of energy possible. Whoa. So Neil passed away in 1989 of non-Hodgkin's disease, which is a cancer of white blood cells. But he left us with the world of slime molds. And what a fascinating world it is. So what's number seven on the list? Lucky number seven on our list is George Washington Carver. If he sounds familiar, but you can't really place him, he's the peanut guy. He was actually born a slave during the Civil War. The exact date isn't really known. He seemed to have a very traumatic upbringing, however, or at least a traumatic infancy, I should say. When he was a baby, his family was kidnapped from the Carver Farm in Missouri and sold to new slave owners in Kentucky or Arkansas. I couldn't really tell which one because I read equal amount of papers that said both. But Moses Carver, who was the owner of the farm in which he was a slave of originally, was kind of mad that someone stole baby George and his mother and hired his neighbor to go find the family. Unfortunately, his mother was never found. However, the neighbor was able to find George and Moses Carver traded his best horse for George Carver. Moses Carver then raised George as his own and taught him to read and write. That is quite the ordeal. Yeah. He was often sick as a child, which prevented him from working in the fields. But he did learn how to cook, embroider, do laundry, and garden. But most importantly, he learned how to create herbal medicines. He quickly became known as the plant doctor and experimented with natural pesticides, fungicides, and other soil conditions. At the ripe old age of 10, Carter decided that he was going to leave his home in the pursuit of an education as all good 10-year-olds do. He was often discouraged from pursuing higher education due to his race. He even was accepted to a school and then later got a rejection letter from that school because they found out that he was black. So dumb. But not everyone tried to dissuade him from higher education. There were a number of people that encouraged him to pursue and get a degree. In 1894, he became the first black person to earn a bachelor's degree of science. He got a master's degree in Iowa State in agricultural science, working with the prominent mycologist L.H. Pamel. He then moved to Alabama to work at the Tuskegee University for the rest of his life. One of his biggest accomplishments in the field of agriculture and microbiology is his idea of crop rotation. Although I don't think he understood the role microbes play in this, he did know that planting cotton year after year after year on the same plot depleted the soil nutrients and resulted in poor yield. But by rotating it with, say, a legume like peanuts or soybeans, the soil could be restored. And really, this nutrient cycling occurs because the legumes befriend rhizobium. And the rhizobium helped fix the nitrogen and help the nutrient cycling and overall soil health. Yay, microbes! Yay. But now all these farmers had all these peanuts. Whatever were they going to do with them? Do you know what he did? Give them to me. <laughs> what would you do with them? So much peanut butter. You wouldn't even know. <laughs> Surprisingly, George Washington Carver did not invent peanut butter, but he did invent three other peanut products, including milk, medicinal oils, flour, 
plastics, Worcestershire sauce, punches, cooking oil, silent oil, paper, cosmetics, soaps, and wood stains, and so many more. Wow, wood stain. Yeah. I think he had like a bunch of different colors of stains too so not just like the one he had different shades but i mean obviously not many of them took off because we only use peanuts for peanut butter now well we use it for other things but mostly peanut butters but carver was the person that put peanuts on the map before carver peanuts weren't even recognized as a crop after carver they were the second cash crop in the south after cotton, of course. He died January 5th, 1943, after falling down the stairs in his home, which seems very tragic. Franklin D. Roosevelt even gave George Washington Carver his own monument, which previously was only granted to presidents like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. You can go visit his monument in Diamond, Missouri, but I don't think right now because I think it's closed because of COVID. But after COVID, you can go visit the George Washington Carver Monument. Who's number eight, John? Number eight is Mary Seacole. Mary Seacole was not by traditional means a microbiologist or even a licensed professional, but she was an important figure for nurses and the medical field. Well, she was born even before like microbiology was really even a thing, wasn't she? Right. But she dealt with microbes. Oh, yeah. She was born in 1805 in Jamaica to a Jamaican mother and a British soldier. Her mother was also known as a doctress, which was someone who treated people with traditional medicines, a knowledge she passed down to Mary. Mary ended up traveling to England several times growing up where she had some time to learn about Western medicine. She also traveled to other Caribbean countries, but came back to Jamaica to practice her nursing skills. In 1950, there was a cholera outbreak in Jamaica. As there always is. Cholera always, I don't know if we have a single episode that cholera does not make a presence in. So she ended up treating the sick and noted how doctors also treated these patients. A year later, guess what? What? Cholera. Of course. (laughs) She went to Panama to treat victims of another outbreak. Her treatments included emetics, warm fermentations. Which is what? They're like warm compresses that stay warm. Oh, Mustard plaster, which is like a salve almost that you rub on the skin, and calomel, which is mercury chloride. Ooh, I gotta love those mercury medicines. Always gotta stick to mercury. It's tried and true. Mm-hmm. She returned to Jamaica to treat those infected with yellow fever, too, and treating them with local herbs successfully. The 1850s, the Crimean War broke out, and she applied to be a nurse, only to be denied. This didn't stop her, though. She paid her way to Crimea and established a hotel where she treated sick and recovering soldiers. This hotel was closed, and she would go to the battlefield. I'm really wondering, like, why was she interested in the Crimean War? I actually don't know that much about it. I don't know if it was the war specifically or she just had a passion for taking care of the sick. She has had a history up to this point of treating soldiers, so maybe she just felt a connection there. Her care of the soldiers earned her the nickname Mother Seagull. After the war, she moved to London where once she was ridiculed due to her heritage was now celebrated. At this time, she was quite poor, but... A fundraising event was put on for her where over 80,000 people attended. Wow. Yeah, it even included generals and the royal family. And she even published an autobiography shortly after. Get a girl. She passed in 1881 and was forgotten until nurses from Caribbean went to her grave, bringing her memory back. In 2004, she was voted the greatest black Briton and a statue of her now resides at the St. Thomas Hospital. Aww. 
Okay, we are coming down to the last two now, number nine and number ten. And these last two aren't exactly scientists or microbiologists, but they did impact microbiology, so we thought we'd include them, for they did change history. And their stories are quite interesting and should be told. Coming in at number nine is the immortal black woman, Henrietta Locks. Now, Henrietta Locks was born in 1920, the age of flappers and speakeasies, but her life was not so glamorous. It is actually a very tragic tale. She lived in an old slave cabin with her grandfather and cousin after her mother died when she was very young. She would later have two children with her cousin, the first being born when she was just 14. I mean, she was basically a baby, having a baby. Yeah. Oh, I can't even imagine. She struggled financially most of her life as a poor southern tobacco farmer. In 1951, at the age of just 31, Henrietta experienced intense pain, a knot in her womb, and bloody vaginal discharge. Being too poor to afford a doctor, she lived and worked with the pain for some time until she finally had to go to the doctor. It is here she met Dr. Howard Jones at John Hopkins. Dr. Howard Jones took a biopsy and quickly diagnosed her with cervical cancer, which even today does not have a great survival rate. A week later, she got another biopsy done by George Otto Gay. Henrietta Lack's soul would pass away in late 1951 when the cancer eventually metastasized throughout her body. So how is she immortal? She's immortal because the cells that Dr. George Otto Gay took became the HeLa cell line, known as the immortal cell line, still used in laboratories today, some 60 years after they were first discovered. What makes these cells special is they continue to replicate and survive well in the lab. The cell line instantly revolutionized modern medicine. There was even a special unit of black scientists down at the Tuskegee Institute whose sole purpose was to produce the HeLa cells for lab use. At peak production, they were shipping out 20,000 tubes of HeLa cells a week. And in the past 60 years, 50 million metric tons of HeLa cells have been grown. I can't even fathom what that would look like. Yeah, well, here's what it looks like. 130 Empire State Buildings. What? Yeah. I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around that one. Yep, crazy. These cells have been used in just about every kind of medical research, from cancer treatment to in vitro fertilization to gene mapping to radiation and cloning. They were even shot into space to see what happens to cells in zero gravity. HeLa cells also help make the polio vaccine possible. HeLa cells today are used in research for several other vaccines, including HIV, herpes, Zika, measles, mumps, and COVID-19. Wow. Still today, after 60 years, still in use. Yeah, amazing. So who's our last one, Jono? Well, this brings us to number 10, Onsimus. It's not even known where and exactly when Onsimus was born, or even what his original name was. But what we do know is he was purchased in 1706 as a gift for Cotton Mather. Gross. Why does Cotton Mather sound a little familiar to me? Cotton Mather was a minister who, among other things, was involved in the Salem witch trials. Oh, that's why. Yeah. More specifically, he was outspoken about being against the use of spectral evidence in trials. Yeah, that was sort of dumb. Yeah, they're being attacked by astral projections of someone else. Yeah. Dumb, 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 dumb. Is that copyright? <laughs> Don't say anymore. I might infringe. <laughs> Anyways, Mather's received this slave and called him Onsimus, a biblical slave name meaning useful. Gross. Double gross. It's really dumb, 
but at least he acknowledged Onsimus as in, as being intelligent by writing that he is a pretty intelligent fellow. Years later, in the 1720s, an outbreak of smallpox had hit the town of Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, no! Onsimus wanted to help and recounted to Mather of a time when he was a child. He had received a procedure where pus from a smallpox victim was rubbed into a wound of Ugh, his. Just throw up a little in my mouth. Don't think about it too much. And don't try it at home. No. This is not how you prevent COVID. This resulted in a more mild infection for Onsimus, but it protected him from getting infected with the virus later in life. A process called virulation. Which is sort of along the same lines in theory as what of vaccines and how vaccines work. Yeah, it's kind of like a stepping stone to where vaccines will come into play. But you cannot really control how much of the virus or of the pathogen you're putting into the new person. So that's why I definitely don't try it at home. Exactly. Also, you don't know what else is in that pus. True that. But anyways, Mathers preached to others about this technique, but people didn't like the thought of this, and he was ridiculed. An explosive device was thrown through his window, and others claimed it was against God's will. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm like super into the whole idea of rubbing someone else's pus into a wound, but I'm not really sure I'd throw a bomb at someone. No. That's a little extreme. Well, People tend to be extreme. That's true. It was Salem witch trial time. Was, everyone was a little crazy around then. Those people so cry cry. Eventually, with the help of a physician, Onsimus's recounts led to almost 250 people in the town getting the procedure, and it stopped the outbreak. Or at least helped stop the outbreak. Right. It should be noted that this procedure was not perfect. People still died from it, but it was at the rate of 1 in 40, as opposed to 1 in 7 when contracting smallpox. I mean, I guess that's better odds. In the end, the outbreak killed 844. No one knows whatever happened to Onsimus, except that he was able to partially purchase his freedom. What does that even mean? I saw a recount where he was able to, like, pay for Mathers to have another slave, but I'm not exactly sure how that in entails in him getting his freedom. Hmm. Interesting. Well, if you want more, check out episode 10 of The Micro Moment, where we talk about the most unethical and bleakest moment in microbiology history, the Tuskegee Study. It's one of the worst things you'll ever read. Oh, for sure. That one gets me real worked up every time I hear it. Mm -mm. Well, Microbial Nation, that's the end of our show. Thank you so much for listening. Without you, we would just be talking to ourselves. If you haven't yet, please, please, please go to our show notes or onto our website and fill out our listener survey because we want to make your experience better. You can find the survey again in the show notes on our website at microbigales.com slash survey. We hope you learned something and find many more ways to celebrate Black history, not only this month, but every month. Every month! So, who's your favorite Black scientist, Microbial Nation? Do we forget anyone? Did we enlighten you? Did you learn something? You can let us know by sending us a... An email at microbigales at gmail.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, or basically any social media at microbigales. That's M-I-C-R-O-B. I-G-A-L-S. You couldn't see, but I was doing a little dance. <laughs> if you found this podcast valuable, please share with a friend so we can be friends with them too. Yeah, we like to make friends. We hope you enjoyed listening, and we hope you now have a new appreciation for how much Black Lives Matter in microbiology and everywhere. Don't forget to feed your microbes. Bye!